0: Father, I thank you for the fact that as we sit here and just briefly have heard just little tidbits of uh, different people's lives, we see you at work, and we thank you for that. Lord, a lot of times in our lives when we get uh, focused on just ourselves and the times where, as we see in the story in Luke 24, where you came and walked along with the two guys on the road to Emmaus, and you didn't reveal who you were for a while, and then when you did open their eyes to see who you were, you then disappeared again, and Lord, there are those times in our lives where we see you, and then we don't see you, and we see you, and we don't see you. we, Your word shows us you're always there, and we know that that's truth. But Lord, it's an encouragement to us to be around other believers in these days, to hear their stories about how you're working in their life. And it's a reminder that you will continue to work in our lives as well. So Lord, I pray that tonight as we continue this study in Revelation, and we allow you to speak to our hearts, that we'll be encouraged by you. That we would... We would see the fact that you came and visited John and not only gave him this message for the seven churches but also for the world in the years to come. Uh, you also were coming to visit him as he was in prison and on that island on Patmos for, for preaching the good news. And so Lord, I just pray that we'll be encouraged by you and I thank you that you're here. May we sense your presence. May we hear you speak. And Lord, for that to happen, it means it needs to be you and your word. And not me. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Now, before we get into the book of Revelation, I'm actually going to take you to two places in the Gospel of John, um, where we left off last week was the fact that I shared with you that illustration of the train robbery. You remember that we were having to, and we didn't tell our kids, and we thought it'd be cool not to tell them. But then we found out it would have been better if we had told them ahead of time what was going to happen. Well. In that same illustration vein, I want to take you to two places in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I'm telling you ahead of time, and here's why. One is so that they would uh, have peace, and we're going to see that one in John chapter 16. Go to John chapter 16, verses 31 through 33. He's been telling them about what's going to be coming up in the days to come, how he's going to be going to the Father, but he would come back and all that. Well, in verse 31, he says, you believe at last, Jesus answered, and But a time is coming, and has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now in this passage here, Jesus told them ahead of time, some things are going to be going on in the next few days. Why did he do it? So they'd have peace. All right, so that they would know, he said this, this isn't a surprise, this hasn't caught us off guard, Well, we know what's happening, it was so they'd have peace. Now, when it happened, when he was arrested, and when they all were scattered, and they all took off, and then they hid, I'm sure there were some times where they didn't have peace, but there were others, I'm sure, who at a time of sanity, if you will, or at least some peace, would probably remind each other of, wait a minute, didn't he say this? This is also another reason why it's very important that you understand this book that we're studying here, the book of Revelation, because in the days to come, you're going to need to at times come alongside of a brother or sister and say, remember, he said this was going to happen. Don't let this get you scared, okay? But there's another reason why Jesus tells us things ahead of time as well, and that is illustrated in John chapter 14. Look at verses 28 and 29. In John 14, verse 28, Jesus said, You've heard me say, I'm going away, and I'm coming back to you. Now, if you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. Part of the reason why he tells us ahead of time is not only to give us peace and comfort, but it's also to believe. Why would him telling us ahead of time cause us to believe? Because
1: what human can know the future.
0: What human can know the future is right. The fact that he said it ahead of time, and then it came true... Alright, you know what? Maybe this guy really is God. Maybe maybe, maybe God really is in control of the future. Maybe He does know what's going to happen. How many of you know what's going to happen tomorrow? Me neither. <laughs> but the Bible says God does know. There isn't a thing that catches Him by surprise, and He knows ahead of time. And He tells us things ahead of time so that we would believe. Alright? So, some of the stuff we're going to be reading about, it's going to seem kind of crazy. We don't know how it's going to work out. But, I'm just going to tell you... He's telling us so that when it does happen, you'd believe. All right, so let's go back now to Revelation chapter 1. We're in verse 4. Now I'm going to read all the way through verse 8, and we're going to take some time to break this down. It says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest, to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, at this beginning here is a very typical start to how books were written back then, especially letters to churches. Uh, he, he starts off with the grace and the peace. Paul, you'll notice, did that in almost all of his letters and all of his books. And John kind of copies that, if you will. But at the same time, when they would write letters, they would start off saying who it was to, who it was from, and all that kind of stuff. But if you look here, who is this book written to as the first audience? As we looked at last week, there's two audiences, but who's the first audience? Churches Asia. Yeah, the seven churches in Asia. Now it's, from, from church history, uh, there, there are those who believe that actually, uh, they say that John, the one writer of this book, was the one who actually started six of those seven churches. Of course, Ephesus started under Paul's ministry, but there's a chance that John was used to start these other churches and that he pastored these churches, kind of an itinerant kind of a thing in that area. Does anybody know where the uh, these churches all are right now, where they're situated and what landmass or, or air country we know of today? Nope. Turkey. Turkey. It's in Turkey. It's what we call Asia Minor. And actually, these are all in Turkey. And uh, it's just to just kind of help you get an idea of where we are and what's going on. But I want to show you that in this beginning here, two kind of cool things have happened. Uh, One is this. He says it's from God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It lists all three parts of the Trinity here in this introduction. Look at again, it says, Grace and peace to you from Him who is, and who was, and who is to come. And this is representing the Father. Go with me real quick to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 13 and 14, very familiar passage, it's, for those that are looking at the second book of the Bible, Genesis then Exodus, chapter 3, it's a very familiar passage of the story of Moses and the burning bush, he sees this bush that's on fire while he's out there tending sheep for his father-in-law. He's realizing now, wait a minute, this bush isn't burning up. So he goes over to see why this bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. And while he's there, all of a sudden God has his attention. God speaks from the bush, tells him to take his shoes off. He's on holy ground. Then God gives him this instruction that he's to go back to Egypt, that he's to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go and let them free because they were in slavery there. Moses asks him this question in verse 13 he says suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me what is his name then what shall I tell them and God said to Moses I am who I am this is what you are to say to the Israelites I am has sent me to you now as you hopefully understand from the scriptures names mean something and God's name means something what does his name I am mean
1: there is no
0: other. Okay, there is no other. Keep Past, going.
1: present, and future.
0: Past, present, and future. His name isn't I was. His name isn't I will be. His name is I am. It's all now to get to, to God. He's a self-existent one. He has always, you know, I, I am. If I were to tell you I am, I'd have to say now. Right? Because right. I haven't always been. I just am now. God can say my name is I am. And now back here in Revelation chapter 1. From him who is, but who also was, and who is to come. And then, of course... He's described at the very end of the section we just read as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So here we see the Father represented, but then we see the Holy Spirit represented in this seven spirits thing before his throne. So what I want to do real quick is just show you that these seven spirits have been referenced um, actually two or three times uh, here in, in the, the book Revelation. So put a bookmark here in Revelation 1. Go to Revelation though chapter 3 and somebody read verse 1.
1: To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have reputation of being alive, but you are dead.
0: Okay, so here are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God again. We see the seven spirits of God. Somebody else read chapter 4, verse 5.
1: From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God.
0: So once again, we see the seven spirits of God. And somebody else read chapter 5, verse 6.
1: Then I saw our lamb, looking as if he had been slain, standing in the center of the throne,
0: encircled by four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out... Into all the earth. So once again, we see that as John is seeing, and we'll get to these in the days to come, as he's seeing God on his throne and he's seeing where God exists, if you will, in heaven, even though God's everywhere, he sees the seven spirits of God represented in many different ways. Well, what is this seven spirits of God? Well, this is re- referencing the modes of operation, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. As you know, number seven is the number of completion. Go with me real quickly, though, to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And it will even become more clear. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Like I told you at the beginning last week, we're going to be interpreting the book of Revelation and studying the book of Revelation by comparing it with the whole of Scripture. You're going to find that most of the book of Revelation has been written in other places throughout throughout the whole Bible. It's not something all new that has been added at the end. So in Isaiah chapter 11... Look at verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. We'll go back to verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of power. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And now, as this is referring to Jesus coming... It lists the seven spirits of God. Count them. How many do you count? Seven. It's a good guess, but you're right. But see, a lot of people get fooled by the fact that the first one says the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. That's the first one. Actually, the seven spirits of the God are the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of Wisdom, Spirit of Understanding, Spirit of Counsel, Spirit of Might or Power, Spirit of Knowledge, and the Spirit of the Fear of the Lord. Here we have the seven spirits of God listed here in the Old Testament. So when John sees this or says that coming from God who was and is and is to come, it's, this message is also coming from the Holy Spirit. Go back to Revelation chapter 1 and you see the rest of that verse. And from who else? Verse 5. And from Jesus. Here, John here illustrates, again, all throughout the scripture, folks, you'll see God is representing the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And here in this situation here, we see that, that this is how it is, is listed. And then he describes Jesus as the one who is a faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, interesting what happens next, though. Like I said, a couple of things I want to pull out from this, this introduction is first he illustrates the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't even get halfway into his introduction and he breaks into praise. Do you see it? All of a sudden the letter just totally changes form. Here he says, John to the seven churches in Asia. Here's who it's from. You know, God sent me this message to you and it's from God the Father who had, was and is and is to come and from the seven spirits of God and who are before the throne and from Jesus himself who's the firstborn from the dead and, 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 uh, and uh, r- ruler of the kings of the earth and he can't contain himself. And he just starts praising. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And then he says, look, He's coming to the clouds. We'll get to that in a minute. Have you ever learned to take some time to just meditate on who God is? Now, And I'm serious about this and I want to challenge you to in your time that you spend with God I want you to really take some time to just meditate on who he is. This is a real picture of worship. A lot of times we think of worship. We think about waiting until Sunday when the singing goes on. And folks, to worship God is to just magnify who he is or to, to, to extol who he is. But we need to take some time to just say, God, you are awesome. But a lot of times in Becky and I, in our, in our marriage, a lot of times she'll say, I love you. And I'll say, okay, why? <laughs> now I know I'm risking it when I ask that question I know I'm taking a huge risk because she could say you know what I have no idea now that you think about it but, uh, but, uh, but at the same time there's an activity though that we have been doing a lot since we were first married it's an activity that I actually used to teach couples when I would do premarital counseling is we'll sit down once in a while and give her a piece of paper and me a piece of paper and I'll say you got to write down 10 reasons why you love me and I'm going to write down 10 reasons why I love you and then we'll sit down and we'll look at each other and go back and forth. And I'll start, I'll say, Becky, I love you because... And I'll read number one. And then she'll say, well, Jim, I love you because... We don't say, well, number one is, number two is... We look at each other and say, I love you because... And then we go back and forth. It's a wonderful experience. And half the time, you don't even get to the end of the list. But I, I don't want to get into that. But, uh, <laughs> but we found over the years as well that actually, you... The list keeps changing. The longer we're married... I don't write the same reasons why. You know, back when I first met her, it was because how gorgeous she was. And it's not that she's not gorgeous now. There's just so much more to our relationship. Now it has to do with what an incredible mother she is. And, and now it has to do with how she just spoils me and treats me like a king and these types of things. And many of you, I will challenge you to begin to really move, like you were just talking about earlier, Dave, about moving from just knowing about him to really begin to experience who God is and I'm going to challenge you to just meditate on who He is. Why do you love God? What about Him is so, well you're great and you're awesome and you're all... No, wh- why? Don't just throw words out that we learn in church and I challenge you to do it and if you do I guarantee you you'll begin to really experience what John went through here. Is he just started to extol who he was and I want to tell you who this is coming from and as he began to tell who he's coming from all of a sudden, he couldn't—he couldn't help it. He just started to praise him. Just started to praise him. And so, if you haven't begun to at least practice that a little bit, try it. For me, for me, I'm not much of a writer. I'd go out in the backyard at night when the stars are out, and just sit there and look at the greatness of His creation, and that puts me into that mode and that mindset where I can just talk to Him about who He is, and I'm preaching to the neighbors at the same time, <laughs> if they're still up. Now, look at verse 7, though.
1: Hey, Jim, can I ask a question about. Sure. Go right ahead. I have a note in my Bible from a study that I did before that talked about where he broke down the Father and then the Holy Spirit and then Jesus Christ. And then back at the end of verse 7, I made a note where the second part says, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. That he was back talking about the Trinity. Do you think that's true or is he still talking about Christ? which I, I mean theologically put
0: your head around as one and the same. Exactly. I'll be honest with you to try to break it all down it wouldn't be worth it. You know um, definitely all authority has been given to Jesus yet at the same time how are you going to separate Jesus from God the Father and the Holy Spirit. You understand? So I think to try to say that it's back to this or he's still ret- it's personally unnecessary. Mm-hmm. I mean God is God and I think the the more we try to break it down is gonna just confuse us because I don't think he can. But it's a good question. I just my answer would be don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. So but let's go to verse seven. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Now what I want to deal with right now at this one from this verse will be a, a very important part of our entire study is we have to be very careful that we don't read the church into passages that the church is not being talked about. See, what has happened over the years through Christendom is the fact that for a lot of years, Christians tried to, especially American Christians, tried to read the church into places that the church wasn't even really listed. This is not talking about the rapture. Okay? Okay. You know, when I say the rapture, it's talking about when Jesus comes and gathers His church at the end of the church age. And Paul said, "I'm going to tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep, or we're not all going to die. Some, we're all going to be changed. He's going to come, and in the clouds with you know those who have already gone to be with Him. They're going to come with Him. Those of us who are alive are going to be caught up and changed. And those who have already gone to be with Him, their body's going to come up out of the ground. And we'll get into a lot of that down the road when we get around chapter four. And I'm going to show you scripturally why I believe that the Bible teaches that the rapture occurs before the tribulation. And I'm going to show you in a lot more detail than you would think. It's more than just, well, you know, I think it'll work better this way. I'm going to show you there's a difference between the church and Israel and God's purposes for the nation of Israel and His purposes for the church age and all that. We'll break all that down in time. But a lot of times we'll try to read something like this and it says He's coming. We think of the rapture. But look closely. What do you see as a key here in this passage that shows us that it's not talking about the rapture?
1: Even those who pierced Him.
0: Okay, even those who pierced Him, we're going to come to that in just a second. Every eye is going to see Him. When He comes in the rap- at the rapture, is everyone going to see Him? No. No. Just those of us who know Him are going to be called in the trumpet. And actually, I think the trumpet of God is the voice of Jesus Christ. And that's another whole part of the study for another time. But I think His voice, when He calls out to gather us, it's going to be like the trumpet sound. And so... This is talking about when he comes literally again to the earth, a second time, to set foot on the earth, and to rule and reign for what we call the millennium, and all this stuff we'll get into in our study of Revelation. But, and then, as, as Allison pointed out, said, even those who pierced him. Go with me real quick to uh, Zechariah uh, chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 10 through 14. Now, Zechariah is not as easy to find. It's near the end of the Old Testament. But you need to learn how to find Zechariah because we'll be coming back to Zechariah a lot in this study. In chapter 12 of Zechariah, look at verses 10 through 14. What chapter did you
1: say?
0: Chapter 12, starting in verse 10 it's literally the second to last book of the Old Testament so you got Matthew if you find Matthew you can go to Malachi and then back up one more book right before that alright in chapter 10 chapter 12 verse 10 it says I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadad-Rimen in the plain of Megiddo, The land will mourn, each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shimei and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. Here he is specifically talking about a time when the nation of Israel is going to mourn because of the fact that they put Jesus to death. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying the Jews killed Jesus. I'm saying that you killed Jesus and I killed Jesus, because he was put to death for our transgressions. he was he was he was punished by God for our sins. Yet the nation of Israel is the one that the scripture is referring to here when it says they look on him whom they pierced. And here we see in Zechariah, this prophecy had already said that. And so there's going to be a day when God will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Right now they don't have a heart for God. Right now they're hardened until the time of the Gentiles and the church age comes to an end. And when that happens and the church is gathered, He begins His last seven year period for the nation of Israel. Like I said, we're going to get into all of that and show you scripturally why that is. But just understand that at a certain point during that seven year period, God is going to pour out His Spirit on the nation of Israel and they are going to realize what they have done and they're going to mourn because of it. They're going to weep because of it. And they're going to look on Him whom they pierced and they're going to welcome Him and worship Him. And Jesus will come to the earth and He'll set up His kingdom in Jerusalem. Alright? So, in this passage back here in Revelation chapter 1 when it says, Look, He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him even those who pierced Him. Don't put that as a rapture passage. It's not. It's referring to his actual coming back to set up his kingdom on the earth. Now, I'm going to just quickly, and we'll deal with it a lot more down the road, quickly show you another place where you have to be real careful that you don't put the church into this passage, and it's Matthew 24. Go to Matthew 24. Chapter 24. We're going to start in verse one, and I'm not going to take the time to read the whole thing. We're going to come back to that later on in our study in the weeks to come. It said Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him and called to call his attention to its buildings. And from what I hear, the temple area and 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 the majesty of those buildings were just you can't even put into words, even for us today. Just the beauty of it was unbelievable, and the and and the size of the stones. I don't even know how they got them on top of each other. But Jesus then said, Do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They asked him three specific questions here. What were the three questions? They said, when will this happen? Talking about the stones not being left on top of another. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So when Jesus answers those three questions in the the verses to come in Matthew 24, which we won't get into now, you need to understand you can't read Matthew 24 and try to read the church into it. Jesus is answering questions to a group of Jews about... His coming, about the fact that in AD 70 all that temple was going to be totally destroyed and literally not one stone was left on top of another. Historians have recorded that. Josephus has recorded that. What Jesus said came true in AD 70. But it's more than that, it's also about his coming and The end of the age. And so when Jesus answers those questions in Matthew 24, for years, myself included, because that's kind of how I was raised in a church that kind of thought that all the promises for Israel are not going to be fulfilled in the church. And so we read the church into almost everything. But actually, as I've grown up in my study, I've come to realize, wait a minute, even though these men were going to be a part of the church, at this time, they're Jews. (coughs) and they believe that He's the Messiah, yet at the same time He's talking to them about their Jewishness. So when it says you will be this and you will be that, don't read the church into it. And that will make Matthew 24 make a whole lot more sense because for years there's been a lot of confusion. And we'll get into that in much more detail down the road. But let me just kind of just throw that out to you. As you study Scripture, don't immediately read the church into passages. Look at its context and its content to see whether or not... It's talking about the church. Okay? Does that make any sense at all? Yes. All right? I said that, and that will help you in your study in the weeks to come. Because I hope you're doing study on your own. I hope you're reading it on your own. And, and that will help you to be ready to go as we continue on. So this passage here in verse 7 is talking about how every eye will see him and is coming about when he actually literally steps foot on the earth. That's why in Acts chapter 1, and we're not going to turn there, as he's standing on the Mount of Olives... They come to him and his disciples say, Are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel to Israel? Because in Zechariah, the script prophecy said that he was going to stand on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was going to split in two. A river was going to all of a sudden run out from it all the way to the temple in Jerusalem. And he was going to set up his kingdom. Well, he's been on the Mount of Olives a lot. That's when they, where he was when they asked him these questions. You know, When's this going to be? I mean, you're on the Mount of Olives. Well, now he's standing. Is the, earlier we just read in Matthew 24, he was sitting. But in Acts 1, he's standing on the Mount of Olives. So now they're saying, hey, your feet are touching the Mount of Olives. Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? And Jesus said, it's not for you know the times and the dates that the Father set by his own authority. And then what happens after that? He's ascended. And he goes up into the clouds. And they stand there looking up at the clouds. And who shows up? Angels. Angels. And they said, "What are you doing here, looking up into the sky?" This same Jesus, who left in this manner, will in this manner return. He's going to come with the clouds. He's going to come in the clouds, and he's going to literally step foot on the Mount of Olives. I can't wait either. <laughs> the good news is, as you will see in this study, when that happens, we're going to come with him. Amen. We're going to come with him when that happens, and that's that's a, such a cool thing. So, but look at verse uh, look at verse eight. Jesus says, "I am the Alpha and the Omega." Says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Has anybody noticed that Jesus keeps saying who is to come a lot? In this small section, we have seen who was and who is and who is to come. Look, he's coming with the clouds. I'm the Alpha and the Omega who, who is to come. What is Jesus trying to burn into our skulls? He's coming back. He's coming back. He's literally coming back. Now, let's just get down to honest brass tacks here. If you were to talk to most of your unbelieving friends and say to them, Jesus is coming back.
1: Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs)
0: and and, 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 and you, they might even think you mean well coming back just to get me and take me away and you know what that's true but they, but what if you said to them, no he's literally going to come back and he's going to set up his kingdom he's going to be on the earth he's going to rule and he's going to reign and all the nations are going to mourn and they're going to come to him for worship they're going to gather where he's going to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem uh, are we starting to sound a little kooky in the world's eyes the straitjacket <laughs> the straitjacket would be out would it not but don't let society make you afraid or even not excited about the fact that I don't care if it sounds crazy it's true I mean, so I mean hopefully everybody in this room has put their faith in the fact that what Jesus did by dying on a cross 2,000 years ago covers your sin and you are now believing you're going to heaven and you're not trying to get there because you believe it's already been taken care of by Jesus and he's forgiven you of your sin and you're going to heaven that's kind of kooky, too, isn't it? I mean, have you ever thought about it? Yeah. You, know, you get a world full of people that if they even think there's a heaven are killing themselves to try to get there in hopes of doing it right and all this kind of stuff, trying everything. I met a man one time in Chicago who was sent by God to come see me. It was interesting. He was seeking truth and all this kind of stuff. And he shows up in my office, and I said, well, what brings you here? And he said, actually, I was in this trailer park and uh, was just doing some stuff in this talking to this lady about my search for God, and she said, oh, you need to go see Jim Johnson. <laughs> so he shows up at my office. And I said, well, tell him your story. He said, I, I really, really want to go to heaven. And so I've got a menorah in my room. I pray the rosary. And, and he literally started listing all these things to cover all his bases. You know how crazy it sounds to say, I don't even do any of that kind of stuff. I believe Jesus has already taken care of it, and I've given him in my life.
1: Either crazy or a relief liberating
0: it is liberating when you really understand the truth and that now at the same time let me tell you Jesus is coming back to this earth
1: well Jim he says that and if that is not true then nothing he said is true and, and we have you know, not, nothing stands you on. got it he either keeps his word and his words are trustworthy and true or they're not
0: now let me show you another way we've read the church into the Bible where it doesn't really fully belong. You can apply this kind of, but it's not what he was talking about. Tell me what the Lord's Prayer says. Thy kingdom come, thy will
1: be done on earth as it is in heaven.
0: Did you hear that? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you're honest with yourself, most of you have been reading that as thinking about it through the church. Your will be done in my life. And and as much as you can apply that truthfully, Jesus was teaching us in the model prayer to say, I'm looking for the day when you literally come back. If
1: this is his kingdom, I feel gypped.
0: Really? Or
1: we don't put a lot of emphasis on it at all. We don't put
0: a lot of emphasis on it at all. I know for me for years I just kind of read that as, well I want your will to be done in, in on earth through me as it is in, in my life. You know, I want you to have rule and reign in my life. And as much as God definitely teaches that and wants that, the model prayer was teaching us to be praying for his kingdom to come. Folks, I told you before, Bible teaches us pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Oh, by the way, don't pay pray for the roadmap. All right, I didn't say pray for the roadmap peace. I said pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Why? Because the only solution is going to be Jesus himself literally coming, and that's where the peace is going to happen. So when you pay, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, you're praying for Jesus to come back. Now there's going to be an antichrist and a false peace for a per- brief period of time, but we saw last week that when God starts all this stuff, it's going to happen speedily, so don't don't get worried about that kind of stuff. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Focus on the nation of Israel. Pray for these people. They are going to have it worse and worse because the world is all now focused on Netanyahu. Has made this speech now where he says that you know he's okay with a two-state solution as long as they don't have any military powers and all this kind of stuff. And every, all of a sudden, everybody's up in arms and say, No, no, let me tell you how you're supposed to do it. And everybody in the world's having a say on what Israel's to do with their land and with the city of Jerusalem. Oh, and by the way, didn't the scripture say in Zechariah that I will make? Jerusalem a cup of trembling for the whole nation for all the nations on the earth it's all coming true you know who I'm praying for in these days I'll be honest I'm not praying for America as much as some of you might think I ought I'm not as patriotic as I used to be because I'm honestly right now more focused on the return to Jesus Christ than God bless America I, I thank God for the fact that I've been raised here and born here but I'm at that point now where I'm so focused on the return of Jesus Christ that I'm praying for the nation of Israel I pray that our country will turn. And I'm still involved in the political process that we would be focused on God and His laws. But you know what? I'm more interested in what's going on in Israel because I believe as we looked at last week the stage is being set for the final act. And so I want my energies and my attention there. All right. Now, let's move on to Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. How are we doing time-wise, dude? 7.43 We're doing good. Y'all are listening fast enough. (laughs) I John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus on the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet did you see that? it's part of why I think that the trumpet we're going to hear when he calls us is going to be Jesus himself which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. What I want to deal with in the close that we have of tonight is this fact that John says that on the Lord's Day, which I believe in this passage here is referring to the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Um, And there are those who say that that, that this is saying that he was in the spirit and he was taken to the day of the Lord, if you will. He was able to see the day of the Lord that was coming and all. I think this is literally just simply saying on the Lord's day, on the first day of the week, is where the Christian church began to worship on Sunday. uh, I was on the Lord's day. I was in the spirit. But we need to deal with this in the spirit thing. And so before we get into great detail, I want you to turn with me to a group of passages here in Revelation where John says this again, this in the Spirit thing. So um, let's take a look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. It says again, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. Go to Revelation chapter 17, verse 3. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with, with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Go to Revelation 21 verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. We need to understand what this in the spirit thing is. Now let me tell you what it is not, and I'll show you scripturally why it's not. But there are those who try to say that when John said he was in the Spirit, he was in a trance. That some say he was in a frenzy. There are those who try to take things of the Spirit and make it kind of chaotic. And actually, I literally just recently heard about those who try to preach in the Spirit, as they call it. And there are those in some churches who, you know, have you, know, you ever seen somebody drunk? Literally alcoholic drunk where they kind of buzz and eh, you know and they're kinda of out of it. There are those preachers now that think that means in the spirit and they'll get up into the pulpit and they'll just stand there like, oh man, I got something from God for you, it. and it's just kind of silly. Because they think that's in the spirit. Let me just tell you that when you are in the spirit, and I'll show you what that means in a second here, when you're in the spirit, you are still in control of you. And I can show you that because in every one of these instances where John says, I was in the Spirit, he could hear, he could see, he could read, he could write, he could ask questions. He wasn't out of control. It wasn't just all happening to him. There were times that he was in the Spirit and he'd fall down and worship an angel and the angel would tell him to get up. He, he would read, he would, he'd be given things, he'd start to write something later on. You'd see him start to write and the angel says, no, don't write that one down. When you hear in the Spirit, don't hear out of control. That is not it. Yet in the spirit means, and I'm going to use Dr. Tony Kessinger's quote here from his book, Come Out of Her, My People, which is a study of the Book Revelation chapters one, two, and three. And I only used his name because he's on my board, and I get a you know, get a uh, you know a, a, a royalty every time I mentioned his name. So the, he said the best way to describe this is that he was John was at a heightened state of spiritual consciousness. I'm going to say it again. John was at a heightened state of spiritual consciousness. In other words, he was extremely sensitive to the Holy Spirit speaking to him. Ready to receive. Ready to listen. Now, hopefully you all understand that when you got saved, you were put in Jesus. And Jesus was put in you. And He's in the Father. And we're swimming in Him. We're in Christ. You understand that, right? And when you were born again, you were sealed by the Spirit of God. He dwells within you. Everything you need for life of godliness is in you because of the Spirit of God being in you. But there's a difference between the Spirit of God just residing in you and the Spirit of God having control. And whenever you see the term the filling of the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. Whenever you see those terms, change that word into control. Be under the control of the Spirit. Be yielded to the Spirit is what the Bible's talking about. And so when John says, I was on the Lord's day in the Spirit, he was worshiping, he was focused on God and he was heightened in his sensitivity to his spiritual consciousness. I hope there have been times in your life After your salvation, you've been in the Spirit. Don't turn it into some mystical thing. It's just the fact that you were at a certain time, hopefully more than once, at a heightened state of consciousness to the fact that the Spirit of God was not only there, but He was speaking. And you were listening. He was talking to you. I'm going to just show you that the Bible actually teaches that that's supposed to happen in your prayer life. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. We we'll start in verse ten and end up in verse eighteen. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter six. Paul says, "Finally, be strong in the Lord. Verse ten, and in His mighty power, put on the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes." For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Here he says to every believer that we're to be praying in the Spirit on all occasions. According to the definition that I've just given you, that in the Spirit means a heightened sense of, uh, of receptiveness, if you will, to spiritual consciousness, or re- re- more awake awake and alert to the things of God, how can we pray in the Spirit? What does that mean?
1: But being in submission to Christ as we pray, really in a listening state and a obedient state.
0: Okay, she said. For those that might not have heard, I'm not sure you're loud enough for the recording here. She said, "Being submissive to Christ as you pray in an obedient and submissive state, where as you're praying, are you saying as you're praying, you're letting God direct how you pray and what you pray about?"
1: Letting the Spirit take over.
0: Okay. Now, again, I I agree with you, but we have to make sure we clarify because some people can say that when the Spirit take over, I have no control. The Bible doesn't teach that. What, is it, what does it mean by takeover? Conforming,
1: conforming your thoughts to to the Spirit.
0: Conforming your thoughts to the Spirit's thoughts. The Spirit will... Does God the Father know how and what He wants you to pray about? Oh, yeah. So praying in the Spirit is actually getting to that place where you are receptive to the Spirit of God already within you, speaking to you about how to pray in the sense of who to pray for, or what to pray for.
1: Well, it's the taking every thought captive and holding it in obedience to Christ. Yeah. There's a book practicing
0: the presence of God. I love it. it.
1: Kind
0: of, <laughs> uh, if you haven't read the book, the practice of the present, practicing the presence of God, go get it. And I'm gonna make a confession to you. How I ended up getting that book was I was in seminary and it was a, cl- a class on the devotional classics, and we had to do a book report. And I had a choice of books that I was going to choose. One was Pilgrim's Progress, which was this thick. And one was Practicing the Presence of God, which is literally, you can read it in a half an hour or less. It's a small little paperback thing written by a monk in the 1400s. And I'm telling you, as Martha just pointed out that book, that book transformed my life. Transformed my prayer life. Because I just picked the book because it was quick and short and I can get my class done... But God knew what what he was doing. And what this monk came to realize was that as much as he enjoyed his times of getting alone in his prayer closet and getting alone with God and focusing on God in prayer, he came to realize that if God is always with me, I can get to that level of prayer even if I'm not in the closet to learn to practice his presence. It started to change how he viewed people. It started to change how he treated people and all that. What started to happen was people that actually irritated him there at the monastery, he would be talking to God all the time. And so when so-and-so would walk up, he'd say, "You know how, how, Hey, Lord, how's so-and-so doing? As he was talking to them. And he started to see people through God's eyes as he was receptive to the Spirit of God. And he learned to speak to the Lord all the time. And it shaped how he prayed. So Paul says that we're to be praying in the Spirit on all occasions. What that means is, you don't just come with your list. You come and you say, Lord, what else? Have you got anything you'd like me to talk to you about? And I challenge you to do it, and I can encourage you at the same time. If you do, you will really begin to sense that God wants you to start praying for certain people, or certain things, or He'll bring things to mind. Now, a couple of times, if you begin to really become sensitive to this, there'll be times when you're actually just driving somewhere, and the Spirit of God will lay somebody on your heart. And you pray for them. But there may be a time where he says, I want you to call them. It's stay connected. That's exactly what it is. So was John in a trance on the Lord's Day? No.
1: He just intimately knew him and was abiding and hung out. And the inevitable overflow of what's going to happen.
0: Yes. And the cool thing for John is, even though he was in the Spirit, connected with the Father through the Spirit, Jesus also physically showed up. And God will do that for you sometimes too. He really will. Well, I just want to kind of just, as we, as we bring tonight to a close, I want you to understand that what we're about to see, though, next week is a Jesus like you've never seen, if you've never read Revelation chapter 1. Because most of us, when we pray, we picture the Jesus that walked on the earth, you know, with the pictures we've seen with the long hair and the sandals and all that kind of stuff. Um, you're about to see what Jesus looks like now. And if you picture that Jesus when you pray, it will change your prayer life as well. It will really change your prayer life if you picture the Jesus that John just saw. Or saw, and we're about to read about.
1: Jim practicing the presence of God will make that scripture where Revelation says that the word was sweet in his mouth, but sour in his stomach. Because what you know is sweet and dear to you, it will sour in your stomach when you are brokenhearted over the people that are going to miss this. Mm -hmm. And that's where it became very real to me was seeing these people through God's eyes. Soured my stomach, literally and physically.
0: Martha, was there more you were going to say about that book with the practice of the presence of God? Here's your chance. <laughs> this is going to 42 different countries. It's your chance to teach. <laughs> um, anybody else before we wrap up? I want to give you an opportunity. Questions, thoughts, things you want to share?
1: Okay, I just had one question in, sure. um, uh, in regards to um, chapter 1. This is what you spoke about last week. Um, you talked about the angel. You made reference to that being Jesus himself. Did I misunderstand what you said?
0: What, what I'm saying is is, is Jesus himself is going to be the one showing up as we're about to see. And we haven't gotten to that section yet. And so in this passage here, it's talking about when, when we see the word angel, it doesn't always mean angel like we know it. The word angel most often is translated messenger. Mm-hmm. And you're going to see that and when we get to the, the story, uh, or, or the chapters 2 and 3, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, or the angel of the church in Smyrna, Smyrna it's talking about the messenger to that church kind of a thing. So in this passage here, it, it, as you look back and see what it says in the context, it says, um, a sent. Or is it which God revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants will soon take place? He made it known by sending his angel or his messenger to his servant John, who testifies to everything He saw that is the Word of God in the testimony of Jesus. I think in this passage here, this one here, it's just simply saying his messenger was Jesus. Now, there are angels that speak to him as well, so it could be referring to that. but I think what he's talking about here, how God sent him a messenger to give this message. And I think it's definitely talking about Jesus. It could also be talking about these angels that did as well came along.
1: Because so. it, it's not mm-hmm. really known. I mean, it's I like I've, I've been taught that mm-hmm. it's the speculation that it was possibly Gabriel, but nobody really knows who it was.
0: Well, again, I think that word angel there actually means messenger, not angel like okay. Gabriel or Michael. And so we know that who was the first person to showed up and speak to him. As you're about to see in Revelation chapter 1, it's Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so I think that messenger that he's referring to is Jesus. Now, are there other angels that we're going to see? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're going to see that there's a difference between them and Jesus because he's going to fall down at the feet of these angels to worship and they're going to tell him to get up. But when he falls down at the feet of Jesus, Jesus doesn't tell him to get up. So there's a difference. So I believe in this passage there, it's referring to Jesus.
1: And that's the introduction, basically, to, to where Jesus addresses all of the churches. Right. So, John right to all these churches.
0: So. Right. So, in that instance, the word angel means messenger, and the messenger is Jesus.
1: So. In the Isaiah 11 passage, um, verse 2 says, And the Spirit of the Lord, and it's the small capital, which also, which translates to covenant Lord, mm-hmm. will rest on him. This is the fulfillment of the covenant the spirit the fulfillment in the spirit of the covenant Lord yep and I I think that's really cool that that's specifically one of the seven spirits that
0: or mm-hmm. yeah. well, one of the modes of operation of the spirit because there's one holy Spirit is he has, he has seven modes of operation and if, as you go back to what Allison was just talking about there and you take a look at the seven spirits of God or the different modes of operation you get the covenant Lord as you were saying and they're going to be the spirit's going to be able to give you wisdom he's going to give you understanding counsel might or power knowledge and a reverent fear of the Lord as well you know and that's part of what the Holy Spirit's about and what his role is so it's kind of a cool thing. To understand a little bit more about the Holy Spirit. Anybody else? I appreciate you saying that um, when you're in the Spirit, especially when people are praying in the Spirit, we don't serve a God of confusion. No. If they say I'm praying in the Spirit and you don't understand a thing <laughs> you're saying... There are those. May not yeah. Be. yeah, you're right. There are those who take that passage in Ephesians mm-hmm. and they try to make praying in the Spirit as tongues. Well, that scripturally can be proven wrong because if it says, I want you to pray in the Spirit on all occasions, yet there are places where Paul says, not everybody has that ability. Do all have the gift of tongues? No. So then that would nullify Ephesians 6 from being for everybody. You see? So you're right. Yeah. Don't anybody tell you that praying in the Spirit means it's, I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, you can't preach in the Spirit and not know what you're saying, because the Scripture actually says in Corinthians that the Spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. In other words, when the Spirit of God is speaking, and hopefully speaking through me, and and, 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 and those of you that have experienced it, as I teach, I can sense and know when the Spirit of God is saying, go here, go there. But also, I can say yes or no. You know, it's not like, well, I had no choice, I had to say it. I actually can say yes or no, and there are times that I don't always walk in obedience to Him when He says to tell, say something, and I don't, kind of a thing. So you're right, yeah. In the Spirit, you still have control of your faculties, you... Are still you? Don't let anybody turn that into something it's not. Go ahead. But
1: it, but it is interesting that we allow our limitations to take away from when we're in the spirit. I mean, sometimes it's that we feel limited so that we can't go where the spirit wants us to go. Or
0: oh, we're afraid.
1: or our fears. Right? Yes. Yeah.
0: You're right. It happened to Moses. It happened to all of them you're right but I'll tell you one thing the more you learn to understand what it means to be in the spirit the more you'll be able to recognize the spirit of God speaking to you because let's be honest Christians aren't that one of the biggest issues that Christians really deal with is how I know when it's God well I can get you started go meditate on it go meditate on it go tell him why you love him and extol who he is and you're going to be in the spirit quicker than you think and you'll begin to recognize when God's talking. It's something you have to practice. I mean, Janet, if I were to call you up, I'd say, hey, Janet, how's it going? You'd probably say, good, Jim, because you recognize my voice. But if you didn't know me, and we didn't spend much time talking, and I called you up and said, how's it going? You'd say, fine, who's this? Right? It, this is the same kind of a thing with you and the Holy Spirit. You have to learn to recognize His voice, but you will. You will. No caller ID. No caller ID. <laughs> <laughs> Let me pray for us, and I'll let you guys go. Thank you again, Father, for this chance to come. I thank you for the fact that you brought some new folks with us tonight. and Lord, I thank you for the fact that this is going to be good and been good and will be good because it's about you and your word, and your word will not return void. It will accomplish everything you set out for it to accomplish, and it's powerful in and of itself. Father, I pray that the two things we saw at the beginning, though, will be burned into our brains, that one, you're telling us these things ahead of time so we'll have peace. And this world is going to be troubled, but we need to take heart. You've already overcome the world. But you've also told us these things ahead of time so we may believe. Encourage us and strengthen our faith, we pray through this study. In Jesus' name, amen.